Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. We've been in a series of sermons from Hebrews chapter 4, but really we've been in a bigger series of sermons from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And this morning and next, as we sort of land the plane for chapters 3 and 4, I want to look at these chapters together. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking them, but I do want to read them. Turn those lights down for me. That I don't want to see um, people too much. I want to see. It's kind of a distraction, oddly enough. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. As I go, I'm going to unpack a little bit, just sort of reorient you to what's going on here. I'll just summarize. Let me tell you what the title of the sermon is, just so you kind of have a sense of where we're going. This is the next to last sermon in the Rest and Work series. It may be the last one. I'm not sure what we're calling next week. I know what it is, but I don't know if it's part of the series. But the title this morning I had titled... How They Work Together, Rest and Work. But I actually want to change the title while I'm up here right now to what it looks like. Rest and work, what it looks like. We're going to consider some passages this morning that show us, rather than giving you some sort of nuts and bolts for how rest and work work, we're going to look at some stories and see how that plays out. So that's the plan for the morning. But we're going to begin in home base here in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 to sort of acquaint you with the context here for 3 and 4. Hebrews, the Hebrews letter is actually a sermon that's written from the Hebrews preacher to the Hebrews church who is considering, kind of make it simplified, becoming a synagogue. This is a church of mostly, what appears to be mostly, maybe completely Jewish Christians. They followed Christ. They see him as the Messiah. They're trusting in him, but they're likely, it looks like they're likely in Rome and they're facing severe persecution, severe trial at the hands of Rome and at the hands of Jews for trusting in Christ. So they're in some ways on the bubble and they're considering becoming Jewish again, only Jewish, as in bailing on Christ, bailing on the church bailing on uh, the gospel. So that's context for chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 3 and 4, starting in verse 7, are an appeal from the Hebrews preacher to just, to simplify it, continue. Don't quit, continue, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. This little excerpt here in your Bibles that's set off in a little parentheses there is from Psalm 95. Not parentheses, it's indented. It's from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written pointing back to ancient Israel when they didn't trust God, when they didn't believe God in the wilderness. God has already taken them through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. He's liberated them from Egypt, and yet here they are in the wilderness doubting him. Is God even in this thing? Is God even in Moses leading? Is God even in this whole plan? We are thirsty. We've got nothing to drink. We've got nothing to eat. And God says, you put me to the test. Therefore, continuing in verse 9, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
the Hebrews preacher is using this psalm and what happened to their ancient forefathers, ancient Israel, and saying, don't do what they did. They didn't believe God. You need to believe God even though you too are in a difficult context, even though you too are undergoing a trial. Trust God and continue with Christ. And in verse 12, he makes a strong appeal. Take care, brothers, to the Hebrews church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Some beautiful considerations in there, the power and influence that we have in each other's lives to help each other go the distance just by exhorting one another, encouraging one another, reminding each other of the truths of what we are learning week after week after week, the truths of what God has done for us in Christ. Continue on in verse 14. We share in Christ, Hebrews church, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You might remember those passages that we considered when we, a few months ago when we worked through these passages. That's where I told one of the only two jokes I've ever told at uh, Crosspoint, and I've told that one a few times. They asked the old man, they said, hey, old man, you lived here all your life? And he says, no, not yet. And that weird, stupid joke that's really not that funny kind of puts in perspective assurance, as at least you look looking through the lens of this passage. People want someone to give them assurance that they have salvation in Christ. But the problem is you can't see the finish line. You can't see the future in someone's journey. I can't assure you that you're going to continue with Christ. I can tell you what it looks like right now. A lot of times you can see fruit hanging from the tree. But the problem is if someone, according to this passage, does not continue with Christ, then they prove that they were never truly of us. And they were never truly in fellowship with Christ. We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Don't bail on Christ, Hebrews church. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It was the sin of unbelief. And the sin of unbelief, that is the catastrophic sin. That's the sin that you cannot somehow be forgiven for because that is the essence of faith. The sin of unbelief is what they were guilty of. And the consequence was a million sandy graves in the wilderness. The wilderness was not just a meandering path for 40 years to get to the promised land. It was one big graveyard where a million people died and were buried due to unbelief. And the Hebrews preacher is saying, don't do what your forefathers did. Believe him. He's in this. Don't bail on him. Shy of the promised land. Chapter 3 is a strong warning. Don't bail on Jesus shy of the promised land. Chapter 4 turns from warning in chapter 3 to in chapter 4, promise. The Hebrews preacher is holding out this beautiful promise for what we have in Christ. Let's see what, what it says here. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, it's not too late for you, Hebrews church. It's too late for them, as proved by a million sandy graves. But it's not too late for you, Hebrews church. While the promise of entering his rest still stands for you, Hebrews church, let us together fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, or the preaching of good news, came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now here he shifts metaphor from promised land to a day of the week. The Sabbath rest that we have will consider today and consider last week in Christ. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. In chapter three, he uses the metaphor of continuing on until you hit the promised land. And in chapter four, that's chapter three, in chapter four, he says, continue on, it's hump day. It's Wednesday in your journey of faith, or it's Thursday, or maybe it's Friday afternoon and you just don't know it. Continue on until you enter the Sabbath rest that is Saturday. He's using the metaphor and the imagery of the rest that was Sabbath. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David. So long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So don't bail on him. Don't bail on Jesus because it's hard. The Sabbath is still held out there as a beautiful promise for you. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The last few weeks, we've been looking at chapter four, especially looking at what is the plain teaching of the passage. The plain teaching of the passage is keep working until you reach the Sabbath. It's midweek, keep working Hebrews church. That was Sunday before last. And then last Sunday, that you need as well. Otherwise, you're going to walk with a limp. You're going to walk like Festus. You need last week as well, where the work is fueled by rest. The first week is work, continue on. Continuing is work. The second week last week is rest now because the work is finished. I can't even remember what my titles were. Rest now for the work is finished. This week, we're gonna consider how those things work together, but I just wanna summarize briefly, work now and then rest now. I wanna put those in contrast. Work now, some of the passages that we considered Sunday before last. Luke 9, no one puts his hand to the plow, no one who puts his hand to the plow who looks back is fit for the kingdom. The language of work, putting your hand to a plow, and the nature of the work is agrarian, which travels not mechanical for you engineers. The nature of kingdom work, kingdom work is very gardening-like. 
over time, little daily faithful movements in the garden where God uses that for his own glory. People are not machines. It's yourself included. We're gardens. And we tend to the hearts and the gardens of our families, of our ministries, of our lives. That picture travels, but it is a picture of work, putting your hand to a plow. Matthew 10 and Matthew 16 both connect to putting your hand to something else, putting your hand to a cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We considered week before last that that work there is excruciating work. That word excruciating was made up from the cross, from the suffering of the cross to describe the kind of work that's involved there. It's excruciating work to follow Christ because you're bearing a cross. We considered also James 1, be a doer of the word. We considered James 2, faith without works is dead. We considered in that one sermon Sunday before last, this picture of striving to enter his rest is a picture of a journey where you are actually working. Faith works if it's living faith. It does. The work week before last was a very important week. We work now for Sabbath is coming. And then last week was the balance, the other side, the flip side of that coin where we rest now. Last week, we considered that our Bibles, at least New Testament-wise, well, Old Testament-wise, are saturated with Sabbath imagery and Sabbath teaching and grave consequences for transgressing the Sabbath. And then in the New Testament, there's this surprising void. It's not recast. It's not retaught while all the other commandments are, most of them, in the Sermon on the Mount. This one is not. It's not retaught as recognized this day. In fact, ironically, there's sort of There's a very different teaching. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Romans 14 gives room within the faith for someone to cut their grass on a Sunday or a Saturday or not. Someone in faith may say, man, we're going to take Sunday, and that in many ways is going to be our Sabbath rest, and we're not going to do that kind of stuff. Man, knock yourself out in faith. Be all you can be, but don't expect that of all the other believers. There's different beliefs within the same faith, and this is a beautiful passage that sort of gives room for that. There's an absence of this important day brought into the New Testament because Christ fulfilled that day. He became our Sabbath rest. He worked so we didn't have to. He completed things that we couldn't complete, and that's why it's no longer a day for us. It's every day we rest in Christ. He did things we couldn't do. We considered last week some beautiful pictures where he gave sight to the blind. He called the lame to walk. He gave food to the needy and the hungry. And he did those things on the Sabbath, showing that I'm going to work where you can't. I'm going to accomplish what you aren't able to accomplish. And that's ultimately what he did finally and completely in the finished work of the cross, atoning for the sin-covering work that we couldn't complete. He wants us to rest in that work. 
As we go about the work that we considered the Sunday before, we go about it fueled by an absolute and complete trust in his work. Like we trust with Abraham, we trust him, and it's counted to us, reckoned to us, credited to us as righteousness. We work now for Sabbath is coming. We rest now for the work is finished. Work now, Sabbath is coming. Rest now for the work is finished. So how do these fit together? Work and rest. How do we find and accomplish as a people who want to obey God's word, how do we find a working rest? Or how do we accomplish as families or as individual worshipers, how do we find a restful or rest-fueled work? What does it look like? I'm not going to give you the how-tos, but I am going to show you what it looks like. Turn to Joshua chapter 6. As you're turning to Joshua, I'm going to share with you why we're going to Joshua and the beauty in what God has, I think, set up this morning. In Hebrews chapter 4, there's a reference made, a comment made about Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That little window that he's given us into that storyline is something that gives us license to go back and look at Joshua. If we want to understand how rest and work fit together, Hebrews 4 clearly says, keep working, the plain teaching of the passages, keep working until the Sabbath, but it also implies through the rest of the book and through a couple of little passages in there, if you want to listen to last week, implies rest now while you do that work. This little reference here to Joshua is a beautiful window for us to go see what a restful work looks like, to go see what working rest looks like. And it really has some humor in it when you really consider it. We're going to look at Joshua fitting the battle or fighting the battle of Jericho, and we're going to look at um, uh, Gideon after that. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Okay, by this point, the nation of Israel, this called people, has been born in the furnace, the iron furnace of affliction in Egypt. They number maybe a million people by this point. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been promised rest in Canaan. Now, they messed that up and ended up this, this large graveyard in the wilderness. But at this point, they've moved into the promised land. They are entering and they're going to inhabit this promised land. But they're going to inhabit this rest, as it's referred to, through conquest. It's going to be a conquering rest. And this first battle is such a beautiful picture of what the work looks like as fueled by rest. Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Okay, that hadn't happened yet. And God, God is telling Joshua, See, I've given them to you. Now, we don't know what this thing looked like. This wall, from what I've read, was about five feet thick from excavations. They think it's about five feet thick, 12 to 17 feet high. That's big enough for me to feel like that's a pretty good wall, sort of a formidable site. 
an imposing sight. And here, the nation of Israel is showing up to the first city that they're supposed to take as they move into rest, move into the promised land, and they see Jericho, this formidable sight. God tells Joshua, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Huh. Doesn't look like it, but God says, I've already given them to you. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. All right, just read your Bible like it's a true story for a minute. Because it is, but just read it like it is. Climb into the story and be maybe one of the Israelites at this moment where you're hearing these instructions. Now, you've seen some amazing things take place, but I can't imagine that you're not hearing this going, what? As faithful as Joshua was, I can't imagine for a moment that Joshua isn't thinking to himself, really, you've given me the city and the king and the mighty men of valor? It doesn't look like it. It looks like a city that's walled up and buttoned up. How in the world are we going to do this thing? And then you give me instructions to march around it and shout at it? You want me to shout at the wall and then it's going to fall down flat? Okay. All right. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the Ark. But the, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to, to circle the city going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. I want you just imagine being in Jericho right now. Imagine being a Jerichoan as we make up an identity. And you're just camped out on the wall. Maybe your, your house is built into the wall and you can see over the wall. And you're seeing the Israelites march around the camp every day, one time around for six days. You've got to be thinking to yourself, ooh, what are they going to do, march us to death? <laughs> What's going to happen here? I mean, it's not a good thing to be surrounded by people when you live in a little city. A siege could take place and things like that. It's not, I don't want to minimize, it's a grave situation, but I just can't imagine the people in Jericho are going, really? <laughs> what are they doing? That looks pretty foolish. It looks like folly. And then on the seventh day, they rose early. And I don't think there's anything coincidental about it being the seventh day. 
Six days you march around the city, and then on the seventh day, I'm going to get something done. Right? Man, those of you who heard last week's sermon, right? On the seventh day is when we're going to get something done. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the devoted, or those things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And I just can't imagine that they're thinking while they're blowing those trumpets and they're shouting, what are we doing shouting at this wall? And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. I love this imagery. When trying to figure out what does work and rest look like, I love this imagery of the conquest, this first picture that we have here, the first battle in the promised land of Jericho, this formidable wall. And God tells Joshua, see, I've given it to you and the mighty men too. Really? And then the work that he calls them to is not the kind of work that the Jerichoans are going to be sitting around going, now they're really about to get something done. It's the kind of work that likely if you're in Jericho, you're going, what are they up to? March around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times, blow the trumpets, and everybody shout, and the wall will fall flat. I've wondered if they were heckled before day seven, maybe even on day seven. I wondered if they were heckled from Jericho. I don't think heckling's a new thing. Certainly heckling's been around for a long time. I can't imagine if I didn't live in Jericho, I wouldn't be throwing out some insults. Ooh. I thought about how silly these guys must have looked, and then I thought about how silly the Hebrews' church must have looked and felt being faithful in Rome. The heavy hand of Rome, Nero, that strong influence of the Jewish church there, the, or Jewish synagogue, I should say, and the persecution that they're administering to the church. How silly the Hebrews church must have looked and felt. I thought about this passage from Hebrews. We've read this recently, and I'll just share it with you. I'll tell you where it is in case you want to turn there quickly or look later. Recall the former days, Hebrews church, in Hebrews 10, 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You were marching around Jericho, Hebrews church, but you bailed on my plan. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. 
Keep marching around Jericho, Hebrews Church. I know it looks silly. I know what I've called you to looks silly, but I'll get the glory when something great will happen as a result of it. You want to see what working rest looks like? That's a great picture right here in the first battle that's fought in the new land, the promised land. God calls his people to work, and that work may or may not seem like it makes sense. It will likely, if it's in keeping with his usual work, not seem very impressive, and it will feel like a trip around Jericho. But it's through those seemingly foolish things that he'll do something mighty. Turn to Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges really is the story of the conquest unfinished. And a lot of what happens in the book of Judges is the conquest or the, the results of the conquest not being completed with little skirmishes and little battles and little wars here and there. And this story in Judges chapter 6 and 7 is about the Midianites, what happens with the Midianites. And it too is a beautiful picture not only of the work, but in this case, it's a great picture of the worker. You want to know what a restful work looks like or a working rest? We see that in the, the Battle of Jericho and the, 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 the little me weird tasks that he called them to. You're going to see it here in this picture too, but you're also going to see what the worker looks like in Gideon. I'll read a couple excerpts, and then we'll begin in verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites plant, planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. Verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abia's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now what you're going to hear about Gideon in the next few minutes, I can't imagine that as he heard those words that he didn't look behind him. Who are you talking to? Mighty man of valor? Me? That's what the angel of the Lord called Gideon. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the, and the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it's, that it's you who speaks with me. Please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, Okay, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon hustled. And he prepares a young goat with unleavened cakes from the ephah of flour, 
The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented him, presented them. And the angel God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. It's pretty funny. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Don't fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And I just wrote out in my margin, isn't this the same guy that he called the mighty man of valor? Little scaredy cat. He's doing it at night. Some people expect so much of God's workers. When you really look at God's workers and the whole storyline, or the bar, is this me or is this y'all? You've got to lower the bar, and whether it's a pastor, or whether it's a small group shepherd, or whether it's a deacon, or whether it's a guy leading a family, or whether it's parents, kids, you got to lower the bar and give people a break. Look at the people that God uses from cover to cover in our Bible. He uses scaredy cats like Gideon to do something mighty. When we really want to examine what restful works looks like, we're going to look at those works and we're going to say, those things are pretty silly. And when we're really going to examine the kind of people that God uses for his work, we're going to look at them and say, they're really pretty normal. And pretty human and pretty frail and pretty feeble. What that's going to do, it's going to lower the bar for maybe what you're expecting of your husband, wives. It might lower the bar what you expect of yourself and what you expect of each other. But what it's going to do, too, it's going to enable you to feel like, if you feel like, I'm a buffoon, man, I can't do anything for God. Then you open your Bible and you see Gideon, you go, well, he works with buffoon. There's hope. Maybe I actually can lead my family. Maybe he can with a foolish buffoon like myself. I like that word this morning. I don't know why. It's not even in my notes. I'll talk more about that later. We'll continue. I don't know what to do about this thing because I'm not sitting down anymore, so it's not the cord. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he's broken 
altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he's a God, let him contend for himself because his altar's been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against himself because he broke down his altar. It's so funny that he gets a nickname like he's some sort of bad motor scooter. Like he's some sort of bad, mm, like Clint Eastwood, faithful Clint Eastwood or something. He gets a new nickname. When we know the rest of the story, he's doing it at night because he's scared. Like, God, did you really speak to me? Give me some sort of sign that you spoke to me. You're going to see that again in a moment. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiez, Abiezrites, I wish that word wasn't in there, something easier to say. They were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Okay, Gideon is rallying the troops. And then, God, and then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. God, if you're really in this thing, it sounds a lot like unbelief. If you're really in this thing, let me lay this fleece out here. If there's dew on the fleece alone then it's dry, and, and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And then Gideon, just so normal, so frail, so human, which brings comfort to me because I ride a roller coaster myself and I bet you do too. Gideon says to God, God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground there will be dew. Can you flip that whole plan around this time, God, just so I really know? And God did that so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubbaal, Clint Eastwood, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Here's where the story really gets good. You know, I want to tell you too, I was thinking early this morning, late last night, there's lots of scripture I'm reading to you this morning. And then I thought, man, if somebody's like, golly, they sure read a lot of scripture at that church. If you, if that's, just, just listen to yourself if that's your problem. <laughs> sure was a lot of scripture in that sermon. Just listen to yourself. I'm going to call that out. It's pretty ridiculous. Okay. Where was I? The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to, to give the Midianites into their hand. You got too many people in your army. Gideon, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You want to know what God is up to in giving us things that look pretty foolish to do? Is he's going to get glorified in it. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So there's 22,000 really scared people that run home because they don't want to fight. 10,000 stick around. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Just can't imagine that Gideon didn't swallow hard. Wait a second. 
Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped like dogs putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Now, I've heard that described as like 100 guys or like three. Does it need a new battery? It's driving me crazy. I know it's cutting in and out. It's shooting the wheels off my focus, if you guys can help me with this. If not, then I'll press on. Jesus didn't have a mic, so (laughs) we can do it. I just need a man up. I was thinking about, I've heard people say that these 300 were like especially wary. Like they must have been the real warriors because here they are bringing water up to their hands and they're looking around, you know, eyes in the back of their head. They're thinking, oh, it's are slobs. These are the slobs. They don't even kneel down to drink water. They lap it up like a dog. And I'm like, well, that makes sense here, given the story, what he's saying, why we have to try so hard to make them some sort of real warriors to where it makes sense to us is to defeat the point. The point here, he's taking the foolish things to confound the wise. You got too many people. Let's make it fewer. Too many people. Let's make it fewer. And then let me find the ones that drink like dogs. And we'll use the slobs. I had a couple guys I went to high school with that came to mind here. One guy, I really don't know his name. We called him Big Nasty because he didn't wash his football gear. And we'd go in there and it's like it stood up in his locker and he would just kind of climb in it because it stood up because it was so stinky and nasty, Big Nasty. I was thinking, man, I bet he would be in Gideon's army. There was another guy that he had a belt buckle that said, Bill, this is back in the day when you put your name on your belt, you know, it was a big thing in Louisiana. He had Bill on his belt buckle, and on the back he had Jay, and those were neither of his names. <laughs> <laughs> so we called him Bill Jay, <laughs> but he was nasty too, and I thought, man, he would have fit right up all up in Gideon's army with the 300 Slavs. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. Does that sound familiar? See, Joshua, I've given you this city and the king and the mighty men already. Hadn't happened yet. See, I've already given it to you. See, Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, if you're scared, Gideon, I know you, 
I picked the foolish things that confound the wise. I know you, Gideon, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts abundance. That's a bunch. They were like, you couldn't even number them. They're like locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. Okay, just imagine this moment. Gideon and Pura or Pura, they sneak up. Gideon's scared, but Pura's there, so he feels better. And they sneak up, and they hear him talking back there. They hear a guy sitting outside his tent. He's saying, man, let me tell you about this crazy dream I had last night. Midianite. Now the Midianite says, oh, you have a good one? Tell me about it. So he tells him, he says, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. To me, that sounds just like shouting at a big old wall. A cake of barley bread is going to come roll through the camp. A loaf of bread is going to destroy the Midianites. I think if it were me, I would have, I would have laughed. I would have heckled with the, the, the Jerichoans, you know. Seriously? That's a pretty funny dream. Well, his comrade apparently had some inside scoop there because he says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. God gave him this image, this, this opportunity to hear this dream to encourage a frail, feeble worker to be about frail, feeble work so that God would be glorified. Sneak down there, scaredy cat, and bring your servant with you. I'm going to let you hear something that's going to encourage you. So you'll follow through on what I've called you to. And he heard the dream, and he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided up the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars and torches into the jars. Yet again, I'm really not afraid. Trumpets, torches, and clay pots really don't sound very scary. But in God's hands, he's going to do something pretty awesome with it. If the Midianites had had the chance to see what's on the gear list for the 300 slobs, they likely wouldn't have been impressed. What's on the gear list for Gideon's army? Trumpets, clay pots, and torches. Ooh, sound pretty bad. We're about to get trounced by 300 men with pots trumpets and he said to them look at me and do likewise when I come to the outskirts of the camp do as I do when I blow the trumpet I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon I put in my little margin there I roll because you know Gideon added that in there I roll he thinks he's the man it made me think about it first time I ever brought Luke fishing 
I baited a hook for them. You know, when little bitty kids fishing, you know, you're, it kind of sits in your lap, you know, and you bait the hook for them, and you're holding the bamboo pole out there. And we caught a fish, you know, and Luke's screaming, I caught a fish, I caught a fish. That's, that's like Gideon, right? For the Lord and for Gideon, I caught a fish. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him come to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. When you want to get a sense of what our work looks like, our rest-fueled work, some really nice pictures. Really nice pictures. They make me think of David's perspective and facing the giant he said you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin everything that the world says is bad to the bone a giant with a sword a spear that's as big as a weaver's beam and a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts with a slingshot a blue suede tennis shoe tongue with shoestrings and a smooth, flat river rock. You come to me with what the world says is bad to the bone, but I come to you with the name. I come to you with the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of Israel this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Man, I read passages like this. I read Psalm, like Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And I realize that's what work sounds like when it's fueled by rest. You want me to march around Jericho? Okay, I trust you. You want me to sit and read the Bible to my family? Just sit and read a chapter of the Bible to my family? That sounds like marching around Jericho. I'm going to do it because I trust you. You want me to come to church when people are preaching and people are hearing and people are singing great things about God? That sounds like marching around Jericho. But I trust you're going to do something with it, so I'm going to obey you and do it. I'm going to trust you're going to take something that's just going to seem routine and mundane and insignificant and do something great with it. That's the way rest-fueled work looks. That's what it looks like. Paul had a grasp on this. I'm going to share a couple of passages with you. I'll tell you where they are, but I really want you to listen, unless you're just one of those adamant turners. Philippians 2, I want you to see what this looks like. 
This will set you free if, if you pay attention to it. It'll set you free. Philippians 2, Paul writes to the church there. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. March around Jericho just like the battle is up to you. Swing that blue suede tennis shoes, shoestring, slingshot with a smooth, flat river rock, just like it's up to you, but know that the battle belongs to me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but sleep at night. Know it's him who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That'll set you free right there. It doesn't leave you unburdened. You're still swinging that rock. You're still marching around. You're still breaking that pot, but you're doing it knowing the battle belongs to the Lord. Man, that's restful work right there. That's rest-fueled work. Here's another picture, the next chapter. Paul goes through this list of all the reasons he would have to boast in himself and have confidence in himself. And in verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this, the res resurrection from the dead or salvation, or that I'm already perfect, but I press Make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You want to see what his work looks like? You want to see what your verbs look like relative to his? We have little tiny verbs that are embedded within his big verb. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, for it's him who works in me to willing to work. I press on to lay hold of that which has already laid hold of me. And that will let you sleep at night. You'll still work, but you'll rest. You'll rest in what you're supposed to rest in. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Man, that's some seriously good medicine right there. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and, and straining what lies ahead... I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Look, let, let me, I want everybody to regroup right now. I see some people getting sleepy. I see some people getting distracted. If there's a sermon, a series of sermons that I so want invested in this people, it's the last two in this one. The one two weeks ago is work now. We're not in our Sabbath yet. The one last week is rest now, the work is finished. And this week is how does that work together? How does that fit together? We press on to lay hold of that which is laid hold of us. 
We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're not a lazy church. We're not a lazy people of faith. We're engaging things that matter as if the conquest is up to us, but we sleep at night knowing that he's the doer. He's the big verb. He's the prime mover behind all our little tiny, all seemingly insignificant, foolish, folly verbs. That will set you free. It will set you free. It, it won't make you lazy. It'll set you free to really engage like your workmates. You're, in a, you're working at L3 or wherever. You got some guys there that you, you feel like, man, these guys, they don't know Christ, and I want to engage them, and I feel like it's really important. It is. Engage them like it's up to you in how you deliver it, but exhale while you do it knowing that God is the mover behind it. He's going to use you in that context. And you're going to feel like a Gideon, afraid. God tests, are you really in this? Can you put a fleece out? You want me to say something to him today? He's going to use those moments to be glorified through them. I don't know how to engage this anymore. I know I read big gobs of scripture today, and I'm just hoping that those of you that are kind of lost in that, that have a trouble paying attention, that maybe you can re-engage it. Those of you who did engage it, man, I, I hope you're connecting to this and realizing that your work will often, not often, usually, feel foolish. It's going to feel like marching around Jericho, but that's what God has ordained to be glorified through. That is what he will fulfill his sovereign will through. So if you're waiting for the clouds to part, for that moment where you speak to your workmate, it's probably not going to happen. It's going to seem like a, an insignificant moment. And what you say is going to sound like a broken pot shouting at a wall. But it's what God could use in that life to open the eyes of his heart and where that sheep hears the shepherd's voice. You want to use it on a family level? I promise you, fathers, our, some of our moms are what we would call spiritually single. Their husband may not be believing. I promise you, mothers, in that situation, if you actually open your Bible and sit with your family and try and read with them, it's going to feel like blowing a trumpet at a big old army. <laughs> it's going to feel like a trip around Jericho looking at this big old wall but it's what God will use to break down the walls and little bitty hearts to see and know God and enjoy God in a way that will, you can't even quantify. Man, those sort of images, those sort of realities, they travel into Monday. They travel. They have to. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul shows yet again, apparently the Corinthian church was, some guys were interested in Apollo, some like Paul, some like the other people. Paul says, man, what is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, 
but only God who gives the growth. He could have said, man, Apollos is like Gideon. And I'm just like Joshua. I'm just following instructions. But the battle belongs to the Lord. He gives the increase. I don't know why the Corinthian church needed to hear this, but they're likely like any of us. And this is where I'm going to land you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is folly. It's folly. Jericho's heckling. Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. That is like a New Testament version of, see, I've given it to you, the king and the mighty men. See, I've given you this city. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I don't know what you think it feels like to preach, but it is the most human thing I've ever done. I went to a concert last night. Avid Brothers or Avid Brothers, I don't know how you say it. And we got home like 12.30 in the morning, and the whole time I'm thinking, can somebody else preach tomorrow morning? Could I give my notes to Scott, and could I sit home in my jammies and watch it online? The reason I thought that is because I made the same stuff you are. And I'm tired. I'm physically tired. I, there is not a single Sunday where I don't doubt myself, where I don't doubt my preparation, where I don't doubt my delivery. There's not a single Sunday that I think if I were better at this, if I could do a better job, people would be arrested with the truths of the gospel and Greenville would be transformed. <laughs> you see how studying Gideon sets me free? <laughs> okay, that puts it in perspective. Okay, I can handle that. I can digest that. And I see the folly of preaching as the thing that he has ordained, just like a trip around Jericho, to break down the walls. So I'll get up, foolish and all, tired. I used hearing protection, so my ears aren't ringing right now. That's the least. I was old, like an old guy, hearing protection. <laughs> People pointing at me and stuff. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's all we got. That's all we got. Not clever. No jokes. No quotables. All we got is preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Jericho, to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You were a bunch of Gideons. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring down Jericho, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's being fueled by rest, boasting in the Lord as you go about your work. Striving in rest was the message of Hebrews 4.11. Strive to enter his rest, and rest is available today. Fight, for the battle belongs to the Lord. You want to put it together? Fight, for the battle belongs to the Lord. Pay attention Consider Jesus. Take care. Exhort one another. The verbs of Hebrews are trips around Jericho. Man, thought about Hebrews 2. That's where I'll land. Hebrews 2 just comes into focus for me as I'm imagining being in the Roman Empire. The Hebrews preacher says, you know what? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him The wall around Jericho is still up. You might feel like at present you don't see everything in subjection to him in regards to your marriage. It might be more war than it is marriage, or it might be existence. You may not see everything in subjection to him when it comes to maybe just even your disposition on life. Maybe it's depression issues. You ride a roller coaster of depression or elation, or maybe just always depressed. Man, there's so many walls. We all have our walls. And while we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The Hebrews church is reminded with Christ have already, has already accomplished the victory and he's seated and in session right now. That's what's to fuel you in your work of conquering that marriage issue, of conquering that sin issue. If you're uh, addicted to some sort of sin privately and you're fighting that, that's how you conquer that, resting in Christ's work. That's how you conquer leading your family in faith. It's not a heavy with a sword kind of conquering. It's a gentle, like a shepherd kind of conquering. We have dominion over that time with your family and you shepherd them in something that matters. You may not see everything in a subjection to him in regards to your kids, but you see Christ seated in session and that's your fuel to make another trip around Jericho. and take us to the supper. I have one of my little trips around Jericho is I have a daily Bible reading that is um, it's nothing spectacular. It's really just the Bible broken down into little sections. You read from four different sections on a daily basis. I keep this in the back of my Bible. It's the McShane Reading Guide. And God consistently sneaks up on me 
in things that I've never seen before are a dot that I wouldn't have connected had I not been reading his Bible just daily, daily investments, daily trips around Jericho. Nothing impressive about it. It's just grabbing your Bible and reading. I usually get behind on the weekends, kind of focused more on finishing up the sermon or focusing on what the sermon is, and I usually spend Mondays catching up. But yesterday, I took some time and actually read on a Saturday. And the reading took me to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And as I shared with you, preaching is a very human endeavor. Not a single Sunday that I don't break every bit of my humanity up here, doubting myself, doubting my preparation, um, just very human. And um, this week, I've been thinking over this transition to the conquest and thinking over, is this a stretch? Am I trying to squeeze something out of this orange that's not there? I do that. I'm not afraid to let you know that I ask those kind of questions from week to week. This week I'm asking, you know, am I trying to squeeze something out? Quest thing. Is that, is that a stretch? Is that too much to connect our work to Joshua's conquest or Gideon's battle? And then here I am sitting by myself reading Revelation, reading the letters to the churches. There's seven letters to seven churches. They're like report cards for these seven churches in the Roman Empire. Listen to how these, church, these letters end to each of these churches. Chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira, this one's sweet. Hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Never made that connection. Like Gideon with a broken pot ruling the nations. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. 
And then Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's the rest. You want fuel for the conquest? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, seeing these letters to the churches, thinking about kind of examining 10 years of ministry here. Been plenty of times where I've doubted that a former Marine infantry officer had the gentleness to lead God's people and the wherewithal to do it in a way that didn't hurt people. And then I see words like that and I see conquer. I'm like, man, could we be that people? Could we be that people that are truly involved in a conquest, working at things that seem ridiculous, working hard at things that seem like folly, and knowing full well that through that, the battle belongs to the Lord, that he not might do something great, he will and is doing something great. Could we be that people? May we be that people. I want to connect this supper to that. It's a weekly reminder that we're walking in a finished work. It's a weekly reminder that we're resting as then we go home and we at forgiveness. That's something that's in front of me right now. There are folks in our body right now been hurt, wrong so bad that you are wrestling with forgiveness. Think about that as conquest. Think about that as putting that under Christ's feet, that in Christ you can actually forgive. Man, this is fuel for that every single week. This isn't just a snack. It's not something we just do. It is being stirred up by way of reminder week after week after week. I'll get up here again next week feeling foolish, trusting. I'll sit down with my family, you, in your den, feeling foolish, but trusting and resting in what that represents, the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. Man, fuel. I don't know of any other fuel. That's all I take in week in, week out. Some of you are going through such terrible trials right now, and I'm sitting here thinking, what did you do with Sunday? That's not even part of the conversation. What did you do with Sunday that the work is finished? Does that impact you in any way? Because that's all I've got. That fuels me to get up here yet again. It fuels me in everything I do. I think it's supposed to. I think when it does, I think that's called worship. When you connect this supper to that situation, whatever that is, whatever that might be for you, whatever that Jericho might be, that wall, when you connect what took place 2,000 years ago that this represents, that's worship. Put a little equal sign, that equals worship. When you connect this supper 
and these sermons week in, week out to that trial and that issue that needs to be conquered, that forgiveness issue, whatever that might be, that's a resting work. That's a working rest. We're going to distribute the elements after I pray. And um, we're going to rest together in a finished work. And we're going to purpose together to be about what may seem like folly, but we know isn't. Okay? Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful that you take things that are not and that you use those things that are not to do things that are great with them so that you'll be glorified. I'm thankful that you take frail, feeble men and women, frail, feeble families, and that you plant little salty, bright, aromatic peoples in neighborhoods or in workplaces. I'm thankful that you planted this people Thankful that you planted us here in this context in Greenville. Thankful that we have an opportunity to have faith that works and to do what we hear and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and to engage and to speak in Christ, whatever our context might be. And that all of that is fueled by a work that is absolutely finished a work that is our hope. Or together we press on to lay hold of that which is lay hold of us. Together we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you who works in us to willing to work. Together, Lord, we strive to rest. In Christ's name we pray, amen.